Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode is another classic Times radio focus group. We ask real people what they think about politics, rather than all those talking heads from Westminster. Today, we've got people who voted Conservative in 2019, now say they're going to vote Labour. They're in Birmingham, Southampton and Rotherham Valley. And we all try to get under the skin of what they don't like about the Tories and actually what they don't like about Keir Starmer really either. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, all aboard, it's time to take a look at the news with The Columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, as ever, we say hello to Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen. Hello. Uh, good to have you with us. And in a rotating cast of uh, partners called uh, Matthew, we are joined by Times Columnist Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Matt. Um, let's talk about what we should do to punish MPs. How do we how do we best punish politicians? Yesterday, I spoke to the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, Daniel Greenberg, who is responsible for investigating them. I asked him, first of all, if uh, alcohol should be banned in Parliament. It is one of the things that clearly many members of Parliament are thinking about for themselves. I think the behaviour, I, I think the attitude to alcohol in the workplace has changed throughout, as you say, throughout all workplaces. It has changed over the decades. When I joined the public service about 35 years ago, it was common for wine to be served at internal lunches. It was, it was, it was a very common thing and it doesn't generally happen today. Um, what do you think, first of all, um, Matthew, as a, as a former MP and a stalker of the corridors of Westminster, uh, should we still have alcohol in Parliament? Of course, we have alcohol everywhere else. Uh, it's up, up to members of Parliament whether they want to drink or not. Members of Parliament are not employed by the state. They are employed in the end by their constituents. Their constituents send them to Parliament and their constituents can send them backing at the next election. And And... We seem to be moving slowly towards the idea that MPs are simply very senior civil servants. They they aren't. They're, they're in a special position. I, I, I think it's a lost cause, but I, I still like to believe that an MP is answerable to his or her constituents rather than any House of Commons official. What do you think about this, Manveen? Do you uh, do you like a drink at lunchtime? <laughs> <laughs> not while I'm working. Obviously, obviously. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I think Matthew's right. Uh, this has changed a lot um, since you know since I first entered the workplace. You know, uh, I first started. I, I did very briefly did a stint in Parliament when I was still uh, at school back in the nineties, and you know, that's that's where everything was done. You know, everybody would would go to the terrace, and that's that's. Uh, you know, decisions were made over drinks. And I think that's sort of changed a bit. I mean, it was the same in journalism. I remember sort of after lunchtime, you, you couldn't find many people in the office when I first began because, you know, columns were being written in the pub. Um, that's a world away from where we are now. You know, I think a lot of this has changed anyway. I wouldn't take I wouldn't take alcohol away altogether from Parliament. I mean, I know we've had incidents of people behaving badly. We've had brawls. We've had... Um, inappropriate behaviour from drunk MPs, but it's such an important part of the way um, the, the way politics is done. You know, I don't know what would happen if you took away alcohol altogether. You know, that's where people go and schmooze. That's how you get people to back your bill. That's how, you know, deals are done. 
Um, I'm I, I'm not quite sure we're ready for the dysfunction that would follow if you didn't have alcohol there to sort of smooth the path a bit. And I suppose... I, uh, I, uh, sorry, uh, go on, Matthew. I, I tell a story against my own argument, really, but <laughs> I had an old friend in Parliament no longer with us, sadly. And when Parliament moved to having morning sittings, because they only ever sat in the afternoon and evenings before, um, he, he complained bitterly to me. He said, I... I can't do with these morning sittings. He said, I have to drive into the House of Commons. And in order to drive, I have to reverse. And I can't reverse without at least two glasses of red wine. <laughs> I can't have two glasses of red wine before lunch. <laughs> but um, times have changed. Manveen is right. <laughs> and I suppose actually, Mavi, the idea of removing alcohol because of the behaviour—it's sort of, it's sort of, it's excusing the behaviour. Lots of people are perfectly capable of having a glass of wine with lunch or yeah. having a pint with a colleague or whatever without assaulting anybody. Like, well, I mean, you'd hope. Um, it is, it is infantilising. I think we've got to be able to expect better of our MPs. I think we should, we should assume that they can have a glass of wine without sort of all hell breaking loose. Um, I mean, I think it was a problem that was raised a few years back when we suddenly had sort of more female MPs who, you know, might have to get home in order to make sure that the kids were getting to bed and things. And I think they found it really tough because they they felt so much of political life was conducted in the bars late at night that they were missing out and it was probably bad for their careers. So, you know, there's, there's a delicate balance. You, you don't want everything to revolve around the bar and parliament, but at the same time, I think it would be mad to try and cut it out altogether. Well, we'll see. Um, uh, it's definitely something that, that um, I know Lindsay Hall is sort of toyed with. And when the bars were shut during COVID, I think he thought about uh, not reopening them. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see how they get on with that. Um, let's move on and talk about. Um, never mind uh, MPs. What about those civil servants? And where where should they be working? Um, I seem to remember. I once once totted up. I think you, you could go back a very long time in uh, British politics to find. Uh, Prime Ministers who've said they wanted to move civil servants out of Whitehall, create new new offices around the country. But now there's this report out today saying that um, the success of it is being exaggerated because actually most of the civil servants are just working from home. And they created, uh, they've had to cut the size of 30 planned regional hubs uh, because um, by a quarter because most uh, more officials are choosing to work from home instead of going into the office. Um, this is a perennial um, suggestion by senior politicians, isn't it, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, it comes up all the time. And I think it sort of got pushed again during the whole levelling up agenda. Um, and, you know, a lot of it makes sense. You do want people to be able to have jobs in the civil service wherever they are in the country. So, you know, lo local hubs do make sense. But, I mean, there's a massive cost attached if you're trying to relocate civil servants from London elsewhere. Um, and ironically, I sort of think, I know it's, it's being talked about as a, as a get-out clause that so many people are working from home and so they haven't actually met their targets. But I think that's probably the answer. You know, I know there was a big push from Jacob Rees-Mogg and various people about sort of being in the office more. But if we allowed people to work from home much more, I think you could have civil servants who lived all over the country and it wouldn't be a problem. Um, whereas, you know, here you're kind of falsely engineering where they, you know, creating hubs in places like Leeds where people have to move if they want to come and work for the civil service. Why not let people work from wherever they happen to be? It could be a little coastal village in, in Scotland and it wouldn't matter as long as they were able to do their job from where they were. I, I sort of think that's probably the future. Well, yes, that, that, that's certainly true of all that work that can be done working from home without going into the office. But the office will remain. People will go into the office, if, if not every day of the week. And I, I think the policy of trying to regionalise 
the civil service has been a really good one and it's been something government's been trying to do for a long time and with a good deal of success why shouldn't there be branches of the civil service in in leeds or or in edinburgh or why shouldn't the dvlc be in in the dvla be in cardiff for instance i i think it's a good thing and we've got to do all we can to stop everything coming to london but I, I, so I sort of remember when when um, there was all that talk of why aren't people going, in, you know, getting into Whitehall and Jacob Rees-Mogg going around and leaving notes and all that. I do remember thinking actually it would be much better if there were just, you know, government offices everywhere. I mean, any that way, anyone, whether you were in Truro or Taunton or Carlisle or whatever, you could you could have a job working for the department, working pensions, the department for transport, you know, doing your your Zoom meetings, maybe going to the office occasionally so you get to see colleagues. And maybe going to the department once a fortnight or once a month, whatever it might be. That there seems some some logic to that, Mamie. Yeah, I think it does. You know, and I think that's how working life will probably evolve. So it would make more sense rather than moving whole ministries. You know, you're right. If they, if they could sort of create workspaces in regional centres where you could go regardless of which department you're in, um, that would just make life much easier. But it it's ironic because while the government is trying to push jobs out of London. They're simultaneously telling people they've got to work in the office, which I think is actually self-defeating. They'd have much more luck pushing people to work all over the country and, you know, taking the benefits of working for the civil service all over the country, helping with levelling up, if they were just a little less stringent about that. And you're both, you're both working remotely right now, and it seems to be working completely, completely fine. <laughs> um, uh, Matthew, we need to talk about um, your chance meeting with a young man in Liverpool, uh, which means you've got the best, as ever, the best political contacts. Well, yes, it, it it has been extraordinary. This was about, I think, seven years ago, the 2016 Labour conference, very depressed affair. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn had become leader, half the party didn't like him. I was walking home late to my hotel and there were a, a couple of guys walking the same way as me and they recognised me and started talking to me. And I, I was really impressed with one of them, really bright young young man. And, and he said, could I have your email address? And we exchanged email address and we stayed in touch. We've seen each other since. We've become quite quite good friends. And he pops up as the new MP for, for Selkirk. He was only, he looked only about 17 at the time. He's, he's only 25 now, not, not Selkirk, sorry. Uh, but but uh, he, he, he is extremely bright. He's very baby-faced. He's very clever. He's moderate. He's, he's, he, he's definitely a Starmerite rather than a Corbynite. And gosh, I was pleased to see him elected. He, he looked quite surprised. Um, and, actually, and he got a lot of, you know, there was all that grief last week, um, man, being from uh, uh, Johnny Mercer, the veterans minister, saying, oh, he was like one of the in-betweeners and we, should, we shouldn't be having such young, inexperienced people in Parliament because he's only 25. Whereas a 20, a 29-year-old in the House of Lords for life is absolutely fine. I know, I know. I, I just sort of think, again, you, you wouldn't want to be pointing that out right now while everyone's sort of slightly aghast at, at Charlotte Owen. Um but also, it, it, I think Pitt just shows a, a real lack of political history. I mean, what would they have made of Pitt the Younger? I mean, what would they have made of sort of politicians of, of the past? I don't think age should really be a barrier at all. It's got to be down to wisdom and your ability to really make a difference for your constituents. I mean, that's what you're being elected for. And from what Matthew says, um, this chap's clearly a good thing. Well done, the people of Selby. 
We'll see him he's getting on. And actually, we, we, we had an exclusive yesterday that Robert Crampton was off to meet him and he, well, he made promises about getting Keir on the, on the show, which did not, did not come to fruition. But I assume that means at some <laughs> point there's an interview with him uh, is going to appear in the Times. Let's turn our attention to travel. I think you're both, I think you're both, both, both regular travellers. Prue Leith has been absolutely scathing about a trip on the Caledonian sleeper. Fell off a bunk bed. Not happy with the food. Ben Clapworth, the Times of Transport correspondent, has got the story. Ben, what... Why, why is she so upset? I've been on the Caledonian Sea, but I thought it was quite nice. Yeah. Good morning, Matt. Yes, no, she's bitterly disappointed by it. She says that the much-trumpeted train was a crashing disappointment. She said they didn't have the cabin that she'd booked, that she had bunk beds, that the ladder was, uh, was too narrow and too steep to climb up. She said she nearly fell out, or she did fall out, trying to get down us in the night to go to the uh, loo and ended up topping and tailing with her husband in the lower bunk because the uh, because she didn't want to get back up and then said the breakfast was awful. Wow. Because um, uh, I thought it had... Actually, cause it was a few years ago that I went on it and I thought it, had, it was supposed to have had a makeover. Yeah. It did have a makeover. It had a makeover in 2019. Yeah. And I actually went on the first um, service when it... Uh, came back in its rejuvenated uh, fashion up to Scotland. And I have to say, I thought that the new cabins, albeit admittedly I did have uh, the room that she hoped she'd booked with the double with bed. With a proper double bed, yeah. Um, and I have to say, I thought it was it was very nice. I do agree. I, I was just actually rereading my uh, piece from the time, and I remember the breakfast being dis- bitterly disappointing, to be honest. It was... It, I'd enjoyed dinner in the dining car the night before and actually had a very reasonably priced i'm sure it's not nine pounds now but uh uh haggis neeps and tatties which was very nice in the dining car previously they'd had two battered old microwaves that they uh made the food in but actually i thought the whole experience was very pleasant albeit the double cabins are 400 pounds um which is very steep when you think you can get a flight for 30 pounds but i i thought it was a very nice way to travel, to travel? But yeah, exactly. Prue Leith, not so much in agreement. Well, as someone who's travelled across the Atlantic with Prue Leith, uh, I know she has very exacting standards. Uh, but I, it, the, ma- the main problem does seem to be she didn't want to climb the ladder, which seems fair enough. Um, Matthew, I know you're 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 a regular traveller. Your your best or worst experiences? I'm a, I'm a very regular traveller. I've just got I'm I, I've devolved myself incidentally to a cave house in Spain, and I've I've come here by train. Now, what a moaning old mini. Pl- Leith has become, I mean, she's in her 80s, isn't she? Of course yeah. she can't climb up a ladder. Um, <laughs> that doesn't apply to most people. Neither she nor her husband were able properly to go up the ladder. I understand that, but then they shouldn't have had a, 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 a cabin with, with two bunk beds. I love the Caledonian sleeper. I've, I've used it twice now. It's, it's really good. It's 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 efficient. Uh, it's wonderful to go to bed in London and wake up in in Scotland. But the breakfasts were fine. The food was fine. No complaints at all. So, my experience with um, with sleeper trains is a little bit mixed in the sense that if you have to go to the loo, you often have to go all the way down the cor- out of your cubicle and all the way down the corridor to the loo. I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm just wearing probably underpants. I don't want to get dressed just to go to the loo. So I peer out and I look and I don't, there's never anybody. And I, I scamper down the corridor <laughs> you know, just in the hope that nobody comes along the corridor. No one ever has, but I once couldn't then find my own compartment. 
<laughs> and I was wandering up and down the corridor in my underpants. And there rests the case for the defence, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that would have really put upset Prue Leith if she'd come across that on top of everything else. Uh, Manvin, she burst you... into her compartment yeah, dressed but... as you were. <laughs> Manvin, can you, can you top that? No, who could? <laughs> who could? Um, I mean, I, 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 I used to love it. I haven't been on the new Caledonian Sleeper. I was really disappointed by that review because I was quite looking forward to it. Um, but I used it in, in the past and it was it was rather lovely. I, I, thought, I thought it was very convenient. Um, and, you know, they uh, back then you'd, they'd sort of give you like a little bag with uh, a really disappointing muffin and that was your breakfast um, when you got to Edinburgh. But um, so, I, yeah, I, I, again, I thought she sounded like she did rather well with hers. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I quite liked it. It used to have this sort of whiskey bar carriage, yeah. which was really sweet. And it was all done up in tartan. I remember walking in there. There was a man on a button box. I'm not sure that's standard, but I, I think I got lucky, uh, sort of playing some sort of Caledonian tunes. And then it, there was Bob Crow, who was heading north to lead a, a strike uh, <laughs> up in Scotland. So I sort of ended up having this weirdly political time on, on the Caledonian sleeper. Um, I have had nightmares with sleepers in the past there. I remember travelling on one. Not like Matthews. I think Matthews sound rather fun. Um, I travelled on one uh, across a part of India years ago, and um, I was travelling with my sister, who was very ill, so she sort of just went to bed. I didn't, and it was like something out of, oh, well, it was Room 101 in, in travel carriages. <laughs> it was it was completely covered in cockroaches, so I spent the whole oh. night... It's like no. hopping, hopping on one foot because I wouldn't, I didn't want to be, didn't want to land on one and just swatting them away all night. It was awful. I, I wouldn't recommend it. Don't do that, but do the Caledonian sleeper. Manvin Rana there from the Stories of Our Times podcast. You can download that wherever you are currently listening to this podcast. Matthew Paris, of course, and uh, Ben Clatworthy. You can read them in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the Times Radio Focus Group. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for the monthly Times Radio Focus Group in association with SSE, powering change for a better world of energy. Times Radio Focus Group with SSE, investing on average £7 million a day into low-carbon infrastructure projects across the UK. Actions, not ambitions, are what's needed now to secure our energy future. SSE, we power change. Verify at sse.com slash change. Yeah, every month here on Times Radio, we convene a focus group of voters to assess how the government is getting on and see what matters to real people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, it was chaired by James Johnson, former number 10 pollster uh, and founder of JL Partners. Morning, James. Morning. Uh, let's start then with the, uh, the legal disclaimer. What is a focus group for and what is it not for? Yep, so a focus group is a small group of six to eight people discussing issues relevant to to politics, or or any subject, in fact. Um, It's different from a poll, which is much bigger. It's 2,000, 1,000 people. It's designed to be nationally representative. The focus group is not designed to be nationally representative. We always get tweets, Matt, saying, you know, come on, come off of it. How can you possibly say this is representative? We're not. We're saying this is a snapshot of opinion amongst this smaller group of voters and the reason is is to dig a bit deeper into what they're saying in the polls how they talk about politicians the attitudes underneath the answers they might be given when they're answering surveys now becky's been in touch says uh, i'm always curious which areas of the country the group is selected from how are the constituencies selected 
Are they always from England? Looking forward to the monthly walk on the wild side. So where where are this group from and why why there? Yeah, so that's that's a, a great general question. So what we tend to do is try to pick constituencies that are going to be key to the next election. So they could be conservative. They're largely seats the Conservatives are defending or that they gained in 2019. Um, but there will also be seats that they held, uh, they've held for a while that might be vulnerable. Um, this time round, uh, we spoke to uh, switchers. So we've spoke, we usually speak to people who voted Labour, uh, Conservative in 2019 or Labour in 2019 and a, a mix of a mix there who are now undecided. This time we spoke to only people that voted Conservative in 2019 who now say they would vote Labour. Um, and three English constituencies, Birmingham Northfield, Rother Valley uh, and Southampton Itchen. We do do Scotland, Wales, other places. But for these ones, we're looking at English swing seats ahead of the next election. And why Birmingham, Rother Valley and Southampton uh, in particular? Key, key seats uh, ahead of the next election. Uh, yeah. all, Birmingham Northfield, Rother Valley, uh, Tory, Tory games at the last election, uh, Southampton Itchen, classic sort of southern marginal. So a bit of a balance there of a couple of what we what what gets called red wall areas, um, and one a little bit more uh, in in the in the south, yeah, but, but still a marginal. Yeah, ge- geographic spread, but yeah, crucially a marginal. So uh, as we always do, then let's uh, let's dive straight in. We you're always asking the same question to, to kick off with. Uh, what, how's the government doing? Uh, and this time you ask them, give the government a grade. A or A star, obviously, being the top marks, and F being a failure. Maybe D, E, something like that. Something towards the bottom, I think. I'd probably go a C, D. Uh, I'd give a D. I'll give an F. I'd say around an A. Uh, yeah, I'd go for an E. <laughs> well, James, that's a good place to start. Um, uh, <laughs> what could the government take from that? Well, I think if anyone's expecting to feel uh, uplifted by this focus group, whether you're Labour or Conservative, you might be in for a bit of a shock. Um, it's uh, it's obviously pretty bleak for 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 the government. Um, there's a general sense that they're shambolic, winging it. Somebody said, um, you know, uh, they're not focusing on the bigger things, out of touch. Uh, it, it's certainly there's certainly still that view as there has been throughout 2023 um, that the Conservatives and the government are not performing well. And you'd expect that to be more emphasis, more emphasis on that with the switchers. Um, but pretty clear that one of the main reasons they're moving to Labour is they feel utterly disenchanted uh, with Rishi Sunak's government. So let's pick through now. Let's have two clips now. Is, is the, the the reason uh, uh, they they've changed, and is there, do they have any hesitations about moving to Labour? First of all, this whole group all all told the researchers they voted Conservative in 2019, and you asked them how they plan to vote at the next election. Probably Labour, because I think it's time for a change. Um, I think people have had enough of like, the current government. I think Labour, I think, um, purely because I think there's time for a change again. I don't particularly like Keir Starmer as a leader, and I think he's, I think he's the wrong fit for Labour. And I don't think I'd vote for Labour just, as a, just, just for change. But I do think that Conservatives need a shake-up, they need a wake-up call. We all know what happens when a new company, a new party comes in and make all these promises and then they don't deliver and then we're back to square one. So I'm a bit undecided at the moment. James, what was striking there? Time for change is clearly the message that any opposition uh, wants to hammer home. And if if normal people are using that, that language, it's always used to repeat it back. But just the general sense of despondency with politics. They, actually, if we change government, we'll just be back to square one again. They'll all break their promises all over again. It's not, it's not very hopey-changey. 
No, very different to uh, the vibe uh, in the 1990s when Tony Blair was uh, was readying up for power. Um, Keir Starmer recognised that last week, of course. He sort of talked about the mood being different to then. Uh, and you can really get a sense of that in, in the focus group. I think on the one hand, you know, Labour understand that and that, you know, that they're sort of tweaking their messages to try and, you know, be realistic with these voters. On the other hand, though, you know, you can see a sort of um, potential to gain for the Lib Dems, for the Greens. If they're able to, disen- if, if people feel so disenchanted, maybe some of those smaller parties can win them over um, rather than uh, getting them straight to go to go straight to Labour. But uh, yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Uh, very, very negative views all around. So what 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 might stop them? They said, you know, lots of them clearly uh, leaning towards Labour. But what are the hesitations? This is this is the great stuff that you don't get from headline polls. If they say they're going to vote Labour in a poll, you think they're then therefore Labour voters. Here, in their own words, is there the reason they might hesitate uh, for voting for Keir Starmer? Um, going back to Tony Blair, um, yeah, worries me a little bit. No, I just think sometimes they're not clear what their actual stance on some things are sometimes. Initially, I voted for Conservative because they made promises to get the country out of debt. Um and I do believe it was Labour that kind of put us there. I don't think Starmer's got a, a clear direction for, for the current Labour. I think he's quite he's quite conservative in a lot of his views. And I don't I think that's at odds with traditional Labour, which which can be a good thing. But I don't feel like he's a guy with a plan. He needs to get a manifesto and become more more not focused, stronger. My only hesitation as to not switch to Labour would be that if we gave Conservatives a bit more time, um, then maybe they would fulfil on, on their promises. They might find a solution to to at least, you know, have a silver lining at the end of all of this. James, what's striking there is there's sort of there's two problems. There's Labour's history, you know, whether it's the debt or uh, Tony Blair and Iraq um, came up. Um, so there's sort of the past and the future. So the, the past, the baggage is still hanging around there. And then in the future, the lack of direction, the lack of a plan, a lack of clarity. 100%. And and that kind, that clip there, that kind of question in a focus group, uh, is one of the sort of sections that political parties listen to the most. Because this is where they can get words and phrases that they can use against their opponents. So, you know, if, you know, if I was... Uh, Still in number 10, um, listening to that, I'd be thinking, right, okay, you know, the going back to square one message is interesting there. Um, He's not a guy with a plan. That's a huge opening for the Conservatives against Labour. There's that sense that they've not sort of got that forward-facing vision. And that concern about continuity, um, it might seem strange to listeners, um, but I remember we had this in a group before, Matt, where somebody said, oh, the Conservatives have really messed up the economy, but, you know, probably best to have the people who messed it up fix it. Which might might sound uh, you know absurd, but there is that sense of you know we don't need more more confusion and change. Now, look, those hesitations were not enough to stop these voters voting Labour. Um, everyone, even people voting for you know Boris Johnson twenty nineteen, Tony Blair nineteen ninety seven two thousand and one, still had hesitations, but they were they were overcome by that political party. Yeah. Um, but you can definitely see a few a few little concerns there on the economy, on a plan, and on this question of continuity. And actually, we see it a lot at PMQs. Rishi Sunak is always saying, I've got a plan, you've not got a plan, I've got my five pledges, you haven't got a plan. Um, and it's that, that's what happens in politics. People take, you know, political parties taking what real people say in focus groups and, you know, get Brexit done was another one, take back control, repeating back to them phrases that, that normal people are using. 
Which is why then when we see, I don't know, other political slogans, um, which no normal person would ever say, they don't resonate in quite the same way. Uh, Let's focus in a bit now on the leaders then. And uh, Rishi Sunak in particular, you asked them to sum up this group of former Conservative voters. Sum up Rishi Sunak in a few words. Um, I'd say he's quite clever, but he's out of touch. Out of his depth. Clueless and out of touch. Don't forget, he wasn't voted in by by the public. He seems intelligent and switched on, but yeah, so definitely out of touch as well. Um, just a bit of a front man again. Yeah, lots of people making decisions behind his back, and he's just the puppet. Blimey, O'Reilly! And there was quite a long conversation, wasn't there, James, about uh, his wealth, the fact he has never had to worry about paying the bills, um, and how that then fed into people's uh, perceptions of the way he responded to the challenges they face. Yeah, um, are we going to play the Does He Care clip, Matt, or shall I quickly summarise it? The which clip? The one where he's like, uh, we asked him, we, well, we asked the voters whether uh, whether they thought Rishi Sunak cared about them. Well, we've got, uh, let me play this one, because this, this might include a bit of that. This was, uh, you asked him how he came across when they see him on TV. I think he portrays himself as being strong um, and puts his intelligence at the forefront. Um, but I find that makes him come across kind of quite smug. Um, even when you you know you compare him to somebody like Boris Johnson, love him all over him. The guy was he was passionate, he was charismatic enough. I think Sunak just he just comes across as a as a cloned politician, same mannerisms. Key words there. One of them is smug. He's got a great grin on his face, and he always comes across very happy and confident, um, like there's no issues. And cloned is another great word as well. You know that it could be anybody. Uh, I feel like he's very over rehearsed, almost a bit robotic. He's been programmed. I don't think he shows any empathy towards the general public at all, really, which is quite sad. He's an intelligent man. He doesn't. He's richer than the king. Richer than the king, yeah. So touching on there, the, the question of whether or not he cares, uh, James. Yeah, really, uh, really brutal listening there. Um, uh, it's, I think, that the most damaging word there for me was clone. Um, uh, you know, people feel very frustrated about politicians, uh, they feel that they're not necessarily being real or being themselves, um, and uh, you could really, uh, you could really hear that come through. That you could also see a, a little bit of the sort of Twitter criticism that gets that happens of Rishi Sunak's media performances and, and responses to interviews. Um, we've not tended to hear that come through in the focus groups, even with switches. But actually, they were talking about him being robotic. You heard the word program there. Um, but really striking that, you know, a good portion of these switchers who, as you say, voted Conservative, voted for Boris Johnson only uh, four years ago, really thought that it wasn't just that he didn't understand voters. It was that he understood and he didn't care about them. And that is a pretty tough place to be and uh, perhaps indicates that some of these switchers might be very hard to, to get back. Um, but if, if this is tough listening for Rishi Sunak, which I think is pretty Fair to say it is. Uh, people should, other Tories should not get overexcited. Uh, James, you asked them, uh, is there anyone else who could do a better job? Is there anyone in the Conservatives that would do a better job than Rishi Sunak? Anyone? No. Okay. Okay. Any names at all from anyone? Already, <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the longest pauses we've ever had, James. I thought the whole Zoom had frozen. 
I know I'm really uh, we're really trying to break records there, aren't we? For uh, for how long we keep our focus group silences going when no one has anything to say. And look, that will be that was a kernel of hope for Rishi Sunak in this. Uh, if anybody uh, thinks that somebody can ride to the rescue from the parliamentary party, they've got a surprise in store. And ultimately, when you look at the polling, Rishi Sunak does still poll better than the Conservative Party. Um, so even despite all of that negativity, uh, Rishi Sunak remains the Conservative Party's uh, best asset at this time. Very good morning to you, Matt Shirley on Times Radio. Bring you the uh, monthly Times Radio focus group. Uh, James Johnson, uh, former number 10 pulser from JL Partners, uh, as ever was in the seat, uh, the hot seat chairing uh, this month's panel. They are voters who voted Conservative in 2019, now say uh, they'll, <laughs> with varied degrees of enthusiasm, they'll vote Labour. Uh, they are in Birmingham, Southampton and Rother Valley. Uh, so, James, we, we've heard what they thought about uh, Rishi Sunak. Let's turn to what they make, then, of the man that most of them, at least, seem to think they, they're going to vote for in the next election. Uh, you asked them to sum up Keir Starmer in a few words. He's realistic. He knows he's got a long road ahead of him. Fly. Okay. Tell us a bit more about that. I think there's there's a trust element there. Um, I think he's, he's reactionary and he's got no real direction. I've put smug there. I feel like he's quite smug with how the current government, their fallings. Yeah, obviously, uh, I've said intelligent and clever. Um, I think he's quite, comes across as quite passionate. And he comes across as just another kind of almost cloned MP that's going to um, just repeat previous mistakes. Um, I mean, it wasn't a hugely enthusiastic response, Joe. No, uh, it looks like we're shaping up for the next elections. Not not quite the attack of the clones, but more sort of clash of the clones. Uh, they also use the same word there on on Keir Starmer, um, this sense that he's not got direction. He's not uh, got his own uh, personality. He only opposes for the sake of it. Similar things that we've heard amongst those who are undecided. Um, so you can certainly see that there are hesitations about Starmer there. Now, look, come a campaign, maybe he can just overcome all of that. Uh, but also come a campaign, maybe these voters uh, are still persuadable, maybe not to go back to the Conservatives, many of whom were very checked out, but maybe not to vote, maybe to go to the Lib Dems, the Greens, to other parties. Uh, that would seem to be the Conservatives' best hope. But yeah, certainly uh, Keir Starmer, not the, uh, not, not, not the asset for Labour, um, as indeed we know from polling and from focus groups. And actually, it's interesting, the, the point you made, that, that a lot of the same words were cropping up all the time. Uh, and in fact, one person in the group really thought they were basically the same person. Both parties yeah. in, in both, you know, from from uh, from, from Keir Starmer getting, um, getting put in charge and, and from Sunak getting put in charge, both parties had an opportunity to try and show a little bit of realism and pick a candidate that that might have connected with people a bit more and both picked eaten, educated, rich, detached. And I think it was a real shame that, that neither party thought, you know what, let's try and mix things up a little bit and pick somebody who's not just an obvious born to be a politician, but somebody who might have actually lived a little bit more. I mean, James, what's interesting about this, of course, actually, neither Rishi Sunak nor Keir Starmer went to Eton. Uh, Rishi Sunak went to Winchester, which is not exactly... Um, uh, a, a down at Hill uh, comp. But um, Keir Starmer will be really annoyed about the fact he's been lumped in. You know, when he, the amount of times he's told us his dad was a toolmaker and he had pebble dash on his house. 
<laughs> You're totally right. Uh, that's not the only time we've heard that, Matt. Lots of people. Uh, we must poll this at some point. Uh, you know, which school do you think Keir Starmer went to, and give them a list. Uh, I reckon a good, a sizable minority would be. Uh, will be. Will be. Will say Eton. Um, and that that feeds into the sense that you know, again, they don't sort of feel like he's he's a genuine sort of femme guy in the same way that they don't feel the same about Rishi Sunak. They think they're sort of almost playing the role of politician. I, I tell you what, you know, listening to that, and and we hear this over and over again when we ask people, "What? Who's your ideal prime minister? Who's your ideal leader?" You know, for those starting to think about the you know next conservative leadership campaign or. Or, 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 you know, if Keir Starmer falls short, the next Labour one, um, you know, you can see the sort of, you know, ideal sort of um, ca- uh, profile there for, for, for a prime minister. You know, someone who, you know, says it how it is, is strong, you know, do- answers the question directly. Of course, it's very hard to do in, in modern politics, but there's certainly something that voters are really crying out for there that those next candidates should uh, should keep an eye out, out for. And the sense of them all being a bit the same. Well, let's let's see if they if they lump in uh, the Lib Dem leader Ed Dave into the same uh, category. You know, they've been doing very well in the in the in the by elections. He's been getting his big blue cardboard stunts out. Let's uh, let's see what this group thought about Ed Davey. I don't know who he is. <laughs> Not sure who he is. I recognise his name, but I don't know why. I'd say he's a bit more approachable, um, but he does seem a little bit out of his depth. I've put realistic. Um, and then couldn't really think of anything else. I don't know enough about him. He's a good speaker, but I think realistically, it's a two-horse race. I think he's the guy that's got more of a um, climate change kind of ethos, isn't he? Looking more about the climate and things like that. I mean, it's quite a good result. They were quite an engaged group, this, James. We're more engaged, and actually, the switches to Labour tend to be a bit more engaged. Although I'm not entirely sure some of the people saying things like realistic and so on actually properly knew who Ed Davey was. I've got my suspicions there. Um, also, but, uh, also, also, good speech. I mean, he's it, fine, uh, Ed Davey, but even Ed Davey probably wouldn't describe himself as Britain's greatest inspirational public speaker. Yes, one of the great weaknesses of focus groups is that uh, sometimes people uh, are happy to admit they don't know. Other times, people pretend to know because uh, they don't <laughs> look like the, the fool in the the fool in the group. Uh, even though we say it's completely fine to say you don't know beforehand. Uh, look, the, the one thing I would say about that for the Lib Dems is that actually people saying they don't know who a Davy is is better than people saying that they don't like him. Um, almost the weaker the national brand for the Lib Dems at the next election, the better. Um, because they're going to run very local seat campaigns. So actually, uh, if I was a Davy, I'd be preferring this to people, you know, picking up on, for example, uh, as they did Nick Clegg very heavily, or indeed, you know, comment, Tim Farron's comments about gay marriage in 2017. Uh, uh, this th- actually, this sort of national anonymity may well end up being helpful to the Lib Dems at the next election. Just finally, then, James, putting all this together, given that because it's been a while since we've done Tory Labour switches. Um, and, you know, it's not supposed to be representative, but they are, you know, essentially randomly selected in three different parts of the country. Um, is it wrong to take away from this that the Labour lead in the polls is softer than its scale suggests? Well, I, I think to, I mean, so two things are powering that, right? One is the people we usually speak to, the undecideds. And I think we certainly see from those focus groups that there is at least a chance for the Conservatives to win some of them back. So that almost, you know, by default, the fact that we've got a high percentage saying undecided shows that the Labour vote is a little weaker than it currently is. With the switches, it's harder to say. I mean, when we look at the switches in the polls, they've they've pretty firmly switched. 
Um, and you can see that here we had some hesitations. But as I say, it's just a small group of people. When you look at the polls, overall, those switches do look quite locked in for Labour. But even if only, you know, one in four of them, uh, you know, one in five go, that obviously will take away from Labour's lead. So I think, you know, based on everything we know from the focus groups we've been doing this year so far, Matt, I think, uh, you know, with Times Radio, I think we can probably say uh, that, yes, Labour's lead in the polls, you know, come an election is not going to be 20, 25 points. Uh, but also at this stage, it's looking hard for the Conservatives uh, to get it down to anything near the level pegging that they will need. Uh, to try and be competitive at the next election, but look, they're not signed up. They're not so- signed up uh, on the dotted line to Keir Starmer. Um, they dislike Rishi Sunak, but they're still some of them, especially the undersiders, are still willing to give them a chance. Uh, but absolutely no doubt that uh, with the switches, it's very much advantage Labour at this point in time. And how do you then, if you are, I mean, you were uh, polling for Theresa May after she lost a majority. Things were pretty grim on an almost daily basis. How do you? go about shaping a plan then if you are Rishi Sunak? Well, I think you've got to think about, you know, well, what are the issues that they can deploy against Labour and Keir Starmer? And you can see that the economy is one of them from that group. We we also get immigration a lot, particularly amongst the undecided voters. Uh, this sense as well that he doesn't have a plan. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, the sort of Rishi Sunak gambit is that, if these promises, if his five promises come off by the end of the year, uh, which I know is looking like a big question mark, but they're still hoping on that, then they will be able to say, look, we have proved we can deliver and here's our forward facing plan for the future. And here's why you shouldn't vote for Keir Starmer. So, you know, there is that would be the sort of semblance of a, of a path. I think the final thing on that is also to think about how people view the prime minister. And you can see there that He's lost the fight on whether he's in touch or not. You know, I don't think he's going to be he's going to be able to persuade anybody on that. But he might be able to persuade them that he's got a plan, that he's strong, um, and that he's he's competent. Uh, so, I, if I were him, I would focus on those things rather than trying to prove uh, that he's the in touch politician. James, it's always absolutely fascinating. I don't think a single person's message in either could call them idiots. So make, make of that what you will. That might be a breakthrough of some description with the focus group. Uh, James Johnson from Dale Partners, uh, thanks very much uh, for taking us through that. That was the Times Radio focus group with people who voted Conservative in 2019 now saying they're going to vote Labour in Birmingham, Southampton and Rother Valley. And uh, as James was saying, we've been doing this uh, every month for the last uh, three years. So there were loads that you can go back and listen to if you want to on the Redbox podcast. Times Radio Focus Group with SSE. Investing on average £7 million a day into low-carbon infrastructure projects across the UK, including building the world's most powerful offshore wind farm today. Actions, not ambitions, are what's needed now to secure our energy future. SSE. We power change. Verify at sse.com slash change. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Let us know what you think. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio. I'm not here tomorrow. Kate McCann is going to be holding the fort. I'm off on a little one-day holiday. I'll be back next week, though. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.